we've got a four-week series on living a whole of life faith. Um, and, and what that part of that is, is that we believe that, and here at Blueprint, we believe that, we believe in living a whole of life faith. That means that if we believe the stuff is real, we believe the stuff is real, that we should live it out with our whole being, and that it should be reflected in every part of our lives, in every rhythm of our lives, um, in every practice of our lives. And so for these four weeks, we've been looking, um, we've been looking and we'll look at rhythms of work and rest, which Rose spoke on the first week, um, rhythms of community, which Paul talked about last week, um, this week, rhythm of pr- Rhythms of Prayer, which Scotty's going to talk about, and Rhythms of Generosity next week. Um, if you haven't caught up on those, they're going to be online, so have a listen to those. Um, and look, we really believe that you can live out these whole faith lives in any context, whether that's kind of um, in your homes, in your flats, whatever that looks like. But we do want to be explicit in how we promote um, chapters in this way. Um, that actually these four weeks, we're talking about a specific way of living, a specific way of living um, that... As we kind of prepare for a time of the sermon, I, I kind of want to like be like, this is actually the key way we disciple people into living whole life faiths in this community. And this is what, these, these are the structures we've set up to say, this is what one of the ways, not the only way to learn it, but one of the key ways that I've learned it and um, Holly and I have learned um, through being part of chapters to live our lives as a whole life faith um, way in our other parts of our lives as well. Does that make sense? Like, that, that that's one of the key ways we do that. And so I want to be, like, explicit about naming that, um, and, but not be exclusive in saying that's the only way to do that. Does that make sense? Awesome. Um, last thing I want to bring is a little bit of a challenge. I think that sometimes when you talk about rhythms of lives, practices of um, whole of life faith, it can feel like a lot, like a lot of stuff to kind of jam into your lives. But what I've been really challenging for myself is, actually, it's a matter of priority. Um, it's a matter of reprioritizing how we live our lives, how we spend our time, how we choose to live our lives, um, yeah, for Jesus. Um, and, and so when we talk about these practices, um, my encouragement is to say, to ask the question, how am I prioritizing my life? And if I want, if I to add these things, would be to reprioritize, to rechoose um, what that looks like, we reorientate our lives to be all about Jesus, to live a whole life of faith for Jesus. Yeah, cool. On board. Well, I'm going to invite up Scotty to speak on rhythms of prayer. Um, yeah. yeah. Hand, big hand. Clap. I know Scotty's going on, so we don't clap for him anymore, but um, I thought we'd try this time, eh? Um, should, I, should I pray for you, Scotty? Uh, dear Lord, thank you for Scotty. Thank you for the wisdom um, he, has, he has shared and will share in this space. Uh, we pray, Lord, that a uh, real blessing upon him um, that... Uh, the words that he has prepared um, will really just be, um, yeah, will really be from you, Lord, um, and that um, that your words will really settle on our hearts um, tonight. Um, pray, pray, blessing of Scotty, um, blessing of peace um, as he speaks in us tonight. Just name, pray, Amen. Nice to be here. Um, uh, yeah, it is feeling like quite a sleepy room, um, so I'm talking quite quite loudly here. Um, hello. Um, good evening. Um, I am not secure enough for you to sit here the way you are right now and for me to get through this talk. Um, so I'm going to need like a little bit more engagement. I'm an Enneagram 4, if you know what that means. I'm very needy. And um, currently you are not giving me enough. Um, so um, just looking at you all here, I'm going to at least... Um, 
I, I, can't, I, I, I can't handle any of you drifting off to sleep tonight, and some of you are on the edge right now. So um, I just want you to imagine that I'm not a podcast um, or um, a Netflix episode, which you can just um, double screen time through, um, because, um, yeah, I feel like some of the stuff tonight is going to be helpful for you. Um, so the other day, someone asked me if I'm into theology, um, which... Um, <laughs> Um, and they said, are you into theology? And I thought, oh man, like, I don't want to say I'm into theology. Um, and what I realised when they said, are you into theology, what I'm not into is the theory of theology. Um, I'm not into the academic pursuit of theology. I'm not into sitting in rooms and talking about what God is like. What I'm into is embodied theology. I'm into um, talking about the things that, um, who God is, and then how that outworks in our lives. Because if it only stays ideas in ivory towers, um, then it actually doesn't matter, right? Um, it doesn't matter. So for me, um, when I think about theology, I mean, I'm doing my, um, I'm in the last paper of my theology bachelor's at the moment. And something I'm really enjoying about doing that at 37 is that I have like a bunch of life. And so I'm like hearing this stuff about who God is. And I'm like, yes, that is how our lives are. That is the truth of the universe. Um, and um, so, for example, you know, we believe in God as Trinity. And that is like, you know, that's a big highfalutin concept that God is somehow three in one. And, you know, and I did a big paper on this and it gets more and more complex. And if you read anything by Augustine, you have to read it like four times over. It's ridiculous. But then when I think about the fact that at the core of it, God is community. And out of that community of love invites us to be community. And then I embody that by showing hospitality and inviting the strangers. Quickly, theology gets really exciting to me, eh? Or when you just talk about this idea of the incarnation, um, and, and it just you know can sound very dry, but then you go, no, Jesus left his place of safety with the Father, came and dwelled in the midst of the carnage of an occupied people, um, that the gospel would come. He lived and he died among them, the the all-powerful God became all-vulnerable even to the point of dying on a cross. And that means that we are called to surrender our places of comfort and head into the dark and messy places of our world. I go, yeah, theology is really exciting, eh? Do you get what I mean? So I think action is really important. Um, And I think we live in an age at the moment where people think that uh, knowing about something is the same as having done something about it. Um, We hear a lot of conversations. People are very educated on a number of issues, but when you actually drill down to the embodiment of those, often there's not a lot of embodiment. Um, And it's to talk about it as the same as to have have done it. Um, So I think actions are really important. James 2.26, just as the body is dead without a spirit, faith without works is dead too. So if you can imagine me, that all the life leaves my body, that I fall to the ground as a cadaver rigor mortis, that is what faith is like without embodied action. That's what faith is, if we just talk about it. You know, um, that actually it is meant to be the word that becomes flesh. What we believe should transform our lives, or we don't really believe it. Um, and so I think, yeah, we have this moment where, you know, it says in John 1 that Jesus was the word who became flesh. But I feel like sometimes in the circles I'm in in Wellington, that people talk about things for so long until the flesh turns back into words again and we don't know what we're talking about. Sometimes there's too many words and not quite enough embodiment. So actions that align with who we believe God is, is crucial. I think action is so crucial. And actually, there's a bunch of people in this room who believe that action is crucial. 
Um, and um, people like Anna Kuzak with her job um, at Amnesty. There are people here who embody every day who they believe God says that we are. I think action matters. I don't think I really need to convince too many people in this room that action matters. But there's also a danger to doing good. There's a danger to action. There's a danger to doing good. Because just because something looks noble or beautiful, it doesn't necessarily mean that it is. Sometimes there are things that look incredible and and, and then you dig a little bit beneath the surface. For example, I look back on my early days as a youth worker um, and I look at, um, can now look back on who I was at that time. And I remember from the outside, it looked glorious and noble and beautiful. Scotty's laying down his life for these kids. But now I can reflect on some of the stuff that was going on in me at the time and see that there was actually a bit of mess in there too. Doesn't mean that God didn't use it, eh? But as you grow up, sometimes you can see your motives in a way you couldn't see them before. And you realise there was actually another thing going on there that wasn't just you being the most selfless hero in the world. Um, So just because something looks noble or beautiful, it doesn't always mean that it is. Jesus said, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. I came not to be served, so not to receive service, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. So we are called to serve as followers of Jesus. But the danger, I think, sometimes, if our hearts are not right when we are doing good, the thing that's meant to be serving others can actually be about serving ourselves. The thing that's meant to be about serving others, sometimes it's actually twisted up and it's about serving ourselves. It looks the same on the outside, but it's a different thing going on. Jesus came, as, and we are called, not to be served, but to serve. And when our service is actually about us being served by the people we serve in, Something's gone a little amiss there. This is the danger of doing good. So I just want to look quickly at three little ways I think we serve ourselves sometimes in our doing good. It's going to be kind of quick. But firstly, I think sometimes we are serving our need for worthiness. Many of us do not at a core level believe that what Jesus did for us on the cross with his death and resurrection actually was enough for us to be enough. When that happened... We were just enough. There is nothing to prove. There is nothing more to do. But very few of us live as if we believe that is true. And so sometimes when we are serving others, we are actually serving them in the need that this time we're giving, this energy we're giving is actually making us worthy. We're actually asking somebody else to cleanse us. We're not sure that Jesus was enough for us. So we will suffer alongside someone else, we will throw our body on the flames of this world just to feel like enough. And the whole time it looks like selflessness. Am I making sense here? I remember a few years ago, um, I journeyed with a good friend of ours, Susie, um, in in my early 20s, who was going through this enormous battle with self-harm. She's um, 10, 15 years later come out of that and become this amazing story of redemption in, in that. And now as a consumer advocate for people going through the same things, um, but I remember, um, I remember we would stay up late with Susie each night, just trying, hoping that if we stayed with her, then another episode wouldn't happen. Taking her to hospital, going back and forth, this went on for months and months and months and months. Eventually, she got into a rehabilitation centre, and we sort of lost contact. And she reflected, she sent a letter to me one day, and in the letter, she said, Scotty, sometimes I feel like your well-being depends on my well-being. 
Like, I needed her to get well so that I could know I'd done good for Jesus. Does that make sense? Probably some of us have felt this in different ways before. Looking so noble from the outside, actually, I needed Susie to recover, not for her, but so that I could know I was a good Christian. (laughs) I had my salvation pegged on someone vulnerable in front of me. I had my worthiness pegged on someone vulnerable in front of me. Good works turn poisonous when it's really meeting our longing for love and acceptance. Good works turn poisonous when it's really meeting our need for love and acceptance. Um, And where the good work is happening only so that we can feel okay within our own skin. So that's serving our need for worthiness. Second, I think there can be serving our need for righteousness. Serving our need for righteousness. Our work is serving the role of saying, I am like a certain kind of person. And there are other kinds of people out there who are not quite as good as I am. I've seen this happen a few times over the years. I've watched different people passionate about different causes. Um, and, um, and, uh, and, and people try to get alongside them, but inevitably what happens over and over again is those people say, but you don't care as much as I do. And it goes on and on like this. And what I've realised is that a lot of those people wouldn't be able to handle it if you cared as much as they did. They need you to care less. They need to be the most caring person. They need to be paying the highest cost or they don't know who they are. They need to be more righteous than you. Some of us have probably been um, this at different times too. Luke 18, 9 to 11, there's the story. Um, Jesus of talking about two men praying. It says, Jesus told the story to some... Jesus told this story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. He says, Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a despised tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer. I thank you, God, that I am not like other people, cheaters, sinners, adulterers. I'm certainly not as bad as this tax collector. Self-righteousness, eh? Now, probably none of us have stood in a place and prayed out loud, thank goodness I am not like this tax collector, but we may have thought, or we may have prayed, thank the Lord I am not like this Trump voter. (coughs) Thank the Lord that I am not like this oil executive. Thank the Lord that I am not like those conservative Christians. That many of us have, in a sense, prayed those prayers. When you feel the need to define yourself in opposition to someone else, it's a telltale sign you've fallen into self-righteousness. When you feel the need to define yourself in opposition to someone else, it's a telltale sign you've fallen into self-righteousness. So firstly, good works that exist to serve our need for worthiness. Secondly, good works that serve our need for righteousness. And thirdly, good works that serve our need for a tribe or for belonging. So you come to a place in this where you are no longer primarily listening to the leading of the Holy Spirit. You are primarily listening to the leading of a political movement, an economic outlook, or a social grouping. And when it comes to how you will respond to something, when it comes to your conviction about what you do with your life, how you respond to a complex situation, you no longer ask Jesus. You get on Google and you find out what the mob thinks. And then you think what they think. And then in time, we decide that that actually is what Jesus thinks. We work backwards from our politics to Christ. You know, um, Shane Claiborne says, um, uh, we were made in God's image, uh, God made us in his image and we returned to the favour. You know, as we come to this election, none of us should feel comfortable voting for any party at all. All of them should make us feel somewhat uncomfortable as people whose primary allegiance is to Jesus and the kingdom of God and not to any political ideology. 
everyone should vote. I'm saying we should all do it uncomfortably. <laughs> if any of those groups are fitting too comfortably your saviour, you may have traded in Jesus for a political ideology. Sorry, I'm going quite hard here. <laughs> um, Jesus said this, John 5.19, I tell you the truth, the son can do nothing by himself. He does only what he sees the father doing. Whatever the father does, the son also does. So this is how our works are meant to be, is only what the father is up to. It's meant to be a dialogue with our dad or our mother God, like, God, where are you moving and how do you call me to respond to this situation? God is meant to lead our action. When our good works fit too neatly within a political or social agenda, we may be serving an ideology rather than the living God. So good works that serve our need for worthiness, good works that serve our need for righteousness, and good works that serve our need for a tribe or a place of belonging. This is where our good works can get messed up. Um, And some of these will be, all of us will find one of these true in our lives, if not all three, right? At least be honest. These are true for me. Like, this is a resource for all of us here. This is where we naturally go. These are the easiest places to find these things. But I want to stop and consider for a moment that sitting before you is a friend like my friend Susie, um, deep in addiction and mental health crisis. And as I sit there and listen to her, um, I am wanting her to give me salvation. And I'm wanting her to assure me that I'm better than those other people who aren't sitting with her. And I'm wanting her to help me fortify a set of beliefs that make me feel like I'm with the right group in the world. As I'm meant to be here pouring out my life for one of God's children, instead I'm asking them to construct my identity. That's a bit gross, eh? Isn't that a bit gross? (laughs) And yet we do this, right? Consider what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13. If I give all I possess to the poor, and I give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. You throw your whole body on the fire for things that you care about. But if it's not because you love people, but because you're using them, then what are we doing? And so the challenge, I know we're at a heavy point, but we're going somewhere good. The challenge is, we are human, and so our motives will always be mixed, eh? They always will be mixed. So I look back on my days of youth work, there were broken motives in there, and by God's grace, God grabbed hold of those broken motives, eh? And brought healing and wholeness to people's lives. You know, no one in this room is perfect. Lots of us are, are, are working in spaces at the moment where it's partly about what God's doing in us, partly about our love for people, partly about some of our own identity needs, particularly when we're younger, eh? We're for, forging our identity. It's really, really natural. Um... And so we have to kind of keep moving forward, eh? It would be a bad thing. You know, some churches now, I think, would, would say at this moment, you just need to do a few years with the love of God and then you can serve. Well, no, because the world needs people to love and serve people now, eh? So we don't take our foot off, but we realise that actually this stuff is icky and it's complicated. And we have to ask ourselves, how do we best serve others without trying to serve our own needs. eh? How do we best serve others without trying to serve our own needs, without asking people who are already vulnerable to meet the wound within us? So there were these guys called the Benedictines. Um, There's a Benedictine monastery I've been to a few times up in um, uh, southern Hawke's Bay um, called Corpua Monastery. 
Um, and one of the phrases that the Benedictines, who must have been around Rosewood, no better than me, probably seven or eight hundred years or something like that now, I, yep, all right. Um, You're right, um, <laughs> But they had the phrase, ora et labora, ora et labora. Does anyone know what that means? Yeah, yeah. Work and prayer. Work and prayer. They saw for them, and they still see today, that there is this hand-holding that needs to happen between the action we do with our lives and the interior life of prayer. Um, more modernly, people like Richard Raw would talk about this as the hand-holding of action and contemplation, that these two things need to go together. Can you put up the first slide, Flora? This is... Um, so works are the fruit of a faith that is not empty. Prayer cleanses our hearts in order that our works may truly be in service to God and to others. In short, our deep longings are met in prayer so that we do not expect those we serve to meet them. In this way, prayer cleanses our hearts so that we don't expect something from those who already have almost nothing. That makes sense? That's not from anyone famous, that's just me. Um, but um, sometimes, you know, when I like want, want someone to um, uh, hold on to something, eh? Just put it up there, it could be helpful. Um, quotation marks. Quotation marks, I know. Yeah, powerful. Quoted myself. Yeah, yeah good. Um, so works are the fruit of a faith that's not empty, right? Works come as an outflowing of us, but the works we do for the gospel should never be about an inflowing. They should not be about a, a, a responding to our needs. Our deep longings are met in prayer so that we don't expect those we serve to meet them. So we serve with truly generous hearts. So three kind of ideas I want to share quickly on what I think prayer does in these spaces and how it gets us out of these things of needing to have our worthiness, our righteousness and our belonging met. Um, and I'm just going to tell them over three stories. Um, the first of these, I... Um, uh, most of you know I have a little girl who's almost three called Luna, who is like um, just amazing and the best thing I've ever done with my life. Um, and um, she teaches me all sorts of things. But one of the things I learned um, is uh, when I was first a parent, you know, you, you get, I, ne- I never wanted to be a guilty parent, but the moment you like have a child, you start wondering if you're doing it right. <laughs> um, and um, and one of my things was um, there's this amazing guy called Nathan Wallace, this parenting coach, um, who talks about kind of attachment um, with young people. And so I was wondering, what are the signs that Luna has a good bond with me? Because a lot of what um, we know these days is if you have a good bond with your parental figures in the first three years of life, it has this enormous effect on the rest of your life, like enormously positive effect. So I'm like, so what does good attachment look like? And my assumption was good attachment would look like Luna always wanting to be sitting on my lap talking to me. So actually the reality um, of good attachment is this, is that if the child feels secure with their parent, they'll actually venture further away from them. And so you watch this thing where um, Luna will be at home and we'll be sitting there chatting and then she'll just go and she'll work and play for 30 minutes. And then after 30 minutes she'll come over and she'll crawl up on my lap for 30 seconds, have a little cuddle, say a couple of phrases, and then she walks away for 30 minutes. She's returning to home base. She's maintaining that attachment. She's coming back to this place where she knows she's safe. She knows who her dad is. And then that allows her to go and do the play or go and do the work. You can probably see where I'm going from this. But I think this is what prayer does for us, is prayer is like securing our attachment with God, eh? 
That the reality of our lives is that day to day we do get distracted and we do drift from the reality that we belong to our Father God, eh? And we go to work and we do the things, but what prayer does for us is it secures attachment to God and so it allows us to serve as secure people without needing something from those we're called to serve. I think this is the, the crucial thing of prayer. It's not even about what we say. You know, someone wants to be Mother Teresa and they said, when you pray, what do you say? And she said, I say nothing. And they said, well, what does God say? And she said, he says nothing. There's a sense of a deeper attachment there than even words. Now, words are nice. Words are important in prayer. Sometimes we need to say what we need, what we desire. We petition God. But I think at the core of prayer is coming back into communion with God, finding space to reset that attachment, eh? So we can go, we can play, we can go and work knowing we are secure um, in this foundational thing that we are children of God. Um, So this is the starting place of prayer, is that secure attachment. The second thing, I can remember a few years ago um, when um, I was on um, Camino pilgrimage across Spain, and there was this one day, um, a couple of weeks in, where we'd been walking for two weeks, had probably walked about um, three or four hundred kilometres or something like that, and... um, coming up this hill, and I was listening to this worship song, um, and the worship song was about um, Christ's death on the cross. And I was just, the hill was steep, so I just had my head down, kind of facing the dirt, um, and I just started to weep as I started to think about what Jesus had done for me. And I just had this sudden sense of like, man, like, how undeserving am I? of what Christ has given for me. Like, how undeserving am I of that? Not in a way where I hated myself or condemned myself, but the gap between Christ's love and my own very meagre love was very obvious to me in that moment. And I get to the top of this hill and I lift up my eyes and there is this, like, eight-foot iron cross at the top of the hill. And I'm like, man, it was like Old Testament, eh? I just fell down in the dirt, eh? It just wept in the dirt. It was like, it was some serious, like, um, uh, sackcloth and ashes kind of moment. But was just overwhelmed with the sense of the goodness of God and a realisation of my own frailty as a human, you know? And again, not in a way where I felt like God condemned me, but I was just aware that he is so God and I am so not. That's the feeling. And if we look through the scriptures, those are like these moments happen over and over again. You have this moment where Isaiah is contending for the future of the nation of Israel, and he has this encounter with the living God, and he falls down on his knees and he says, Woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips from a nation of unclean lips. He just has this realization, You are so God, and I am so not. And I've tried to be God, and I'm not very good at it. And the words of Mark Johnson, our friend in um, Newtown, he says, You know, we make great humans, but lousy gods. Sometimes there are these moments where we realise we make lousy gods. Um, Luke 18, the second part of that passage where the guy says, I'm glad I'm not like this tax collector. It then has the tax collector who is sitting there beating his chest and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Similarly, we might remember Paul getting knocked off his horse and and sitting there um, repenting before God. So prayer is a returning to the reality of a good God who loves us. And it's a humbling reminder that we are actually just fragile humans, eh? Like that he is a very good God um, and we are very, very human. And prayer is a returning to reality. You know, I think the nature of our world today um, is that it either erodes us to having um, a far lower view of ourselves than we should or a far higher view of ourselves than we should, eh? We lose touch with reality. You know, we... um, 
we, we put up a social media post and it gets like 30 likes and suddenly we think we're the biggest thing in the world and then we put up another one and no one likes it at all and we're like, I am a worm. <laughs> there is a need for us to return to the reality of who we actually are. In our work, it's so hard not to put our identity in our work, eh? To believe that we are what we do. We need moments where we realise that what we do in our jobs matters, but it doesn't make us God. And prayer is one of those places where we realise even though we strive for a more just world, we are so inadequate for that without the one who created the world, eh? So the first of those things, we've, we come back to attachment with God like a little kid. Um, but secondly, we come to these moments of repentance and, and, and striking the reality of who God is and the reality of who we are. Then a final story here. Um, a few years ago, um, Rose and... Um, some of us were over in India, um, and we were helping out at uh, the Missionaries of Charity, Mother Teresa's gig in Kolkata. And uh, you go there each morning for mass with all of the with all of the nuns there. It's quite beautiful, but the only thing about it is because they're super Catholic, we can't take communion. Um, and I like I love communion, eh? So I'm just like you know, it's just you go through the whole mass, and then they're like, um, <laughs> goes. So this happens for probably about two weeks and I'm like oh my gosh I like even Bishop Justin was there he couldn't take it like I don't know love Catholics but what's with that um, and um, and so it gets to the end of this and then I fly out to um, London um, and uh, afterwards and I get to London and one of the first things I do is I go down to Westminster Abbey um, where they have a Eucharist service and I go there in the middle of the day and Enrolls a hundred people, and all around we can hear like different languages, you know, like all sorts of backgrounds. Um, lots and lots of tourists, locals, um, local folks living on the street have come in. It's just like we all have pretty much nothing in common, none of us know each other. And then the mass begins, and we're all familiar with the words, and we all start to say them together. And then this group of people who have nothing in common except Jesus come to the front and receive together. And you think, you know, I had a whole story of two weeks of just waiting to have communion. How many of those people have been waiting and in what different ways and with what different stories? In that room, there might have been thieves, there might have been murderers. In that room, there would have been liberals, there would have been conservatives. It was around Brexit time, there would have been pro-Brexits, there would have been anti-Brexits there. There would have been the ultra-rich, there would have been the ultra-poor. And so the third thing is prayer is where we gather around Christ so that we don't need to gather around another ideology to define ourselves. Prayer is where we gather around Christ so that we don't need to gather around another ideology to define ourselves. You know, I might vote green. Green is not my identity. I might vote act. No, I won't, but I might vote act. (laughs) Act is not my identity. My allegiance is to Christ and his kingdom. And everything comes secondary to that. And so when we come together to pray, particularly when we come to pray together, we remember that actually, first and foremost, I belong to the family of God. First and foremost, I am a son or a daughter of the king. I am not my political, economic or social allegiance. These are not the things that define me. And here in Wellington, as it is at the moment, everything is screaming at this age group to define yourself by your political allegiance. And we have to fight that our allegiance is to the kingdom of God before it is to anything else. When we gather together in prayer, we find a deeper belonging as sons and daughters of God. And that is so that when we serve others, 
We don't serve them as an expression of our ideology, but we serve them as an expression of God's love for us. You get that? We don't serve people as an expression of our ideology. We serve them because we have experienced the grace of God and we want to share that grace with others. So there's three things to begin with. We had the way we serve others for worthiness. And in prayer, we find an attachment with God where we realise that we are worthy. The second of those, righteousness. The desire for righteousness, the desire to define ourselves against others. In prayer, we realise that it is his goodness and no one else's goodness that draws us in. And then finally, our desire to belong, our desire to have a tribe or an ideology. In prayer, we come together and remember that our fundamental identity is the sons and daughters and the family of God. In a way that even those who have nothing in common can come together um, and can be one in Christ Jesus. And so you see this thing, eh, that if our work is not holding hands with prayer, if it's not aura et labora, if it's not action and contemplation, then our work can end up really poisonous, eh? Many of us in this room who are familiar with the narratives of colonisation knows what a white saviour looks like, eh? And what is that if not all of this stuff just working out without God cleansing hearts? For us to go and do truly good things in the world, we need to put our hearts before God over and over again. Um, to do spiritual hygiene, not to say. To make sure that the good works we're doing actually are his good works and are not us trying to meet a need within ourselves. You put up that um, last slide. Did I quote myself again? I did. Um, prayer is the place where our need for worthiness is met so that others need not meet it. Our need for righteousness is met so that others need not suffer it. And our need for belonging is met so that the truly homeless need not offer us a dwelling. Prayer is where we abide in God and so can serve others without the need to be served in return. That to me is, is what this is about. These two things must hold hands. And for some people in this room, prayer is way easier and action is tough. For some people in this room, action is easy and prayer is really tough. But our faith is built in such a way that these things need to hold hands together. Now I can see from the looks on some people's faces here that I have like definitely put some hot takes into the room um, and, um, and, and to you I would uh, offer um, when Jesus said to people um, do not be offended on my account um, <laughs> um, um, but I think we need to wrestle with those things and to be honest the way I've learned to read the Bible is to read until something offends me and then to pursue it. Sometimes the feeling of discomfort or the feeling of offence is exactly the thing we need to lead into to hear what God is saying. Um, so shall I pray? Is that a good thing to do at this moment? Why don't I just give it a minute of silence um, so that we can just sit with what we see. Yeah, Lord, we so long for your kingdom to come. We so long for those who suffer in places of injustice and poverty and addiction and loneliness. We so long for all your children to be free. Um, but God, we know that um, many of us have been exhausted trying to do that ourselves, um, trying to earn a sense of salvation or worthiness 
trying to belong. And so, Lord, we want to step into the glorious freedom that is your spirit empowering us. Um, yeah, through prayer to, to love in a genuine way that is not about ourselves. So we pray, come Holy Spirit. Um, Lord, for those here who need conviction, Lord, would, would they receive it? For those here who need to be held and need a balm to, to aching wounds in their hearts, God, we pray that you would come and be that too. God, in prayer, you long to be with us. You say, draw near to me and I will draw near to you. So we just put aside all of those, um, yeah, all of the, the motives we can see, the ones we cannot see, and we lay our lives before you and say, come, Jesus, clean our hearts, purify our thoughts, purify our motives so that we can serve in a way that is truly good news to people in this nation and in this city. Amen.